The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on News Talk 1493 FM. You're invited to join the program by calling 217-356-9397 or send a text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 217-351-5357. Opinions and views expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of the station. And now, On the Money with your host, Paul Rudy. Good Tuesday morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. We have two of our regular guests, one in the studio today, uh, Ryan Repko, who's a certified financial planner with me at Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning. Good to be back. After certified a week off. financial planner professional, right? I have to say it or you get in trouble if I don't That's right. say they the throw whole us word. Right in jail. And Dr. Fred Gertz, I think, is on the telephone, the world traveler. Dr. Fred, are you there? Oh, I think Fred dropped off. Uh, anyway, I think Fred will be back on the show. And with Fred, we, I think he was going to be on for a, uh, a more brief period, uh, maybe 20, 25 minutes when he gets back online, and happy to take his call then. You can call us with your questions, 217-356-9397, or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that, fut- that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, until Fred gets back on. Um, well, I think I think people that are invested in bonds are seeing something they haven't seen in a while, right? <laughs> seeing bond prices that are, depending on your maturity and quality, anywhere from 1% or 2% down to, I saw that the Vanguard total bond index uh, is down, um, about 15% from its all-time highs. I think we do have Dr. Fred Gertz on the line. Dr. Fred, are you there? I'm here. Oh, good. Glad. I saw you dropped off. I thought you, you know, you know, had enough of me already. Okay. Well, uh, can, you, uh, can you hear me all right? I can't. Thank you. Um, okay, well, so, you know, it's kind of, there's not much has changed in the last couple of weeks. Uh, inflation's a big concern for people. The stock market is once again in correction territory, down 10 or 11 percent. Uh, interest rates are continue to tick up, and it sounds like the Federal Reserve, Fred, is. I, I was I didn't really catch it completely, but it sounded like the Federal Reserve came out and suggested that maybe they could raise interest rates this next time in May, maybe by three quarters of a percent, and that seemed to catch people by off guard, or, or maybe I misread that. No, I think that uh, they probably consider the situation more serious than uh, they did originally. I think that move things along more quickly, even though it's an election year. But again, uh, it's easier for us to say, well, this is unexpected. It obviously, it's not expected, but we didn't know when to expect it. Right. So again, when interest rates go up uh, and we have inflation, uh, the, the price we have to pay is potentially, um, obviously, not even potentially, but a uh, a downward trend in the stock market and then potentially even a, uh, a mild recession. So I think that's where we are at this point where the possibility of a recession is still not near 100%, but it's certainly much bigger than it was uh, six months ago or so. And isn't that essentially what the Fed's trying to do is calm demand down? I mean, just reduce demand in the economy to try to get prices down? Is that is it, is it as simple right. as that? Well, I think it's as simple and, and uh, high level. It's obviously more, more complicated. And the problem is that the Fed doesn't have a bunch of switches they can turn or pull and, and get exactly what they want. They only have indirect control over the interest rate, and the interest rate has an effect on the economy, but not necessarily in a way that anyone fully understands, certainly the timing. So the problem is they know what, what they want to do. They want to have a soft landing, but... The chances of that probably are about 50-50 at this point. It's hard to pull that off. Again, it's, I mean, it's rare. Yeah, and the offset, right. And the offset of a soft landing is not a crash. It's a, a hard landing. So it's not, not that uh, if we have a, this is a soft landing, the economy is going to go back to 2007 to nine. That's probably right. not very unlikely at this point. So uh, more of the standard issue, as you talked about last time, we're, we're kind of all used to crisis mode uh, economic declines and therefore declines in the stock market as well. This is kind of the old-fashioned 
uh, if they do, if we do go into a recession, uh, it's it's probably more. Of, it's not a shocker crisis driven. It's more of a Federal Reserve induced. My words, not theirs. Right. Uh, you know, economic slowdown, and uh, you know, and that's not the same thing as a. It's not as scary as a crisis driven one. If you lose your job, obviously, it's a it's a problem, but. I think we're all so right. still shell shocked over the great financial crisis and then the pandemic. Yeah, the last two recessions have been kind of one of a kind. They came right after one another. Uh, the uh, typical recession is like uh, you know, 2000 and uh, 1990, 1991, uh, 1981, where the Fed has to raise the interest rates to try to rein in the economy. The byproduct of that is a slowing of the economy. Now, there's a, there was a big slowing in uh, uh, the early 80s, but the uh, 90s and, and 2000s were barely noticeable. So the hope is that we do have a recession. It will be a very mild mild one. Yeah. And we still have, it seems like we still have the supply chain issues, and China's continuing to lock down. And people might wonder, well, what, what does that have to do with the this radio show? But it suggests to me yeah. that maybe – you know, more bumps and bruises on the supply chain issues and pricing problems because of the lack of supply? Yeah, we're kind of uh, schizophrenic in a sense that uh, there's a lot of fear about China and all the bad things they might do in, in terms of uh, sealing uh, ideas and so on, but yet we're extremely dependent on for most of our manufacturing activities. So uh, wishing uh, China ill at this point is probably not a particularly good idea for the United States. I noticed that we're starting to see what's called the misery index pop back into the headlines every now and then. Uh, and I think that's a combination of the unemployment rate and the inflation rate, you know, added together. And they, they came up with that. I don't know when they came up with that. Was that the late 70s or was it even prior to that? Yeah, it was Arthur Oaken, who was an economist at Brookings and also on the Council of Economic Advisors, came up with it. It's just the back of the envelope rule of thumb. Kind of thing, but again, if you go back to uh, the early 1980s, we had 12% inflation and uh, 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 unemployment close to 10%, so a, a misery index of, uh, over 100, over 20%. Right. If you go back a couple prior to the uh, COVID situation, we had basically almost zero um, inflation and unemployment down to 2% or so. So the index then was about four or five. Which yep, was, you're right. Unbelievable in terms of uh, past experience. So we're moving back into a more normal situation, but we're a long ways away from the 20% um, uh, misery index. Again, I think I, I saw a presentation. Uh, the the uh, economics department at the University of Illinois celebrated its uh, 125th anniversary. We had a, a, a alumnus who was on the Fed board. And he thought that inflation would uh, probably fall back to 5% or so, more or less naturally. So that's too high, but it's certainly not uh, continuing at 8 or 9 or 10%. And, uh, you know, with all this talk of recession, it sure strikes me if, if I ever go out to eat dinner, the places are full. I know this is anecdotal and almost sounds silly, but it's persistent. Airplanes are full, trying to get a place to stay even next for next summer is still booked tight as right. a tick. Uh, it seems like the consumer is still spending, spending, spending. And, and so that, to me, conflicts with a, at least a recession anytime in the real near future. Uh, is it something we might think about when people think of recession, if the Fed can't engineer a soft landing, that, that it might be next year before we, we really enter that or late this year? That could very well be, but the, the, what you said, I think, is completely true, but that makes the challenge to the Federal Reserve all the more difficult because uh, they have to rein in this uh, huge uh, kind of pent-up demand. People have uh, funds available uh, from the COVID situation. Uh, right now, jobs are plentiful. So uh, the only way you deal with inflation is to discourage people from spending as much, and, and as you mentioned, it's going to be more difficult than, uh, than usual this time. It almost seems like it's chasing, a dog chasing its tail because, you know, even their policy now exacerbates that, I think. In other words, inflation is 8 8.5%. Uh, you can borrow money at 2 3%. It seems to me that it still pays to borrow and spend until the Fed increases real interest rates, which means, you know, they would raise the interest rate maybe ultimately as 
to the level of inflation or higher. That's how they cured it in the late 70s, early 80s. And we, we got a, we're a long way from there. Uh, it looks to me like the real right. interest rates are maybe minus 5 or 6%. And, and that suggests more yeah, borrowing and spending. I think, they did. Yeah, I think the 8% situation may, may be transparent. I said that's a long time. I think uh, you're right. wrong uh, a year ago. But... Uh, we said, well, well, we'll fall back down. Well, I think it still will fall back down, but not back down to the 2%, but probably down to the 4 or 5%, which is probably more manageable. And maybe that's what the Fed's thinking. They're saying, okay, yeah, this 8.5% print, it's startling. Uh, but maybe a few percentage of that is just the quirky supply side and, and timing issues yeah. and maybe the natural inflation rate, rate. Maybe they're sitting around thinking, look, without all that stuff, we might be at a 4 or 5% inflation rate, which is – Two to three percent higher than their target rate, but they might. Maybe that's why they figure they can get take this more gradual approach without you know being too brutal right. on the economy. That kind of makes sense, actually. Now yeah. that I think of it. Yeah, I think also the the uh, inflationary expectations are higher than they were, but they're not back to the uh, level of the seventies and eighties. Explain so that to people. Will you explain that because? We all see inflation numbers, but then we, we always hear about, it seems like more frequently, inflation expectations. And it's, it strikes me that the thought is the inflation expectations are really the, the more important driver of, of how right. things end up. Good inflation uh, has a differential impact. So, again, if you're borrowing money and uh, you don't expect inflation, inflation occurs, you're better off because you're paying back in, in uh, uh, dollars of lower value, and it's this, the opposite for lenders. So, if you real, if you expect the uh, inflationary situation in the future, then you expect that uh, lenders will take that into account, and uh, probably interest rates will go up a little, little faster. And so, and you have to, and once you have that expectation, it's more difficult to kill it. That's why uh, we had such a deep recession in the early '80s that we had inflation probably building up from the late 60s up until 1980 and something had to be done and we took pretty drastic medicine and the medicine ended up with a, a side effect of a, a pretty steep recession. And is is one way to measure inflation expectation to look the difference between say a 10-year treasury, straight treasury bond uh, that pays nominal interest like a normal bond and then maybe it's a uh, uh, it's comparison on the treasury inflation protected security for 10 years. And that difference is kind of what the bond market expects inflation. Is that when people talk about expected inflation, is that a measure of it or is it something completely different? Well, I mean, that's, there's no one measure. That's a, a pretty good way of looking at it. And right now, long term uh, rates are a little bit higher, but they're clearly not uh, high enough to suggest that people are expecting 7% inflation over a, a long period of time. So again, I think that, the seven eight percent may be uh, transitory, but instead of falling back down to the two percent, we'll probably fall about halfway in between temporarily. So there's really no particular reason to think this is a, a complete replay of the mid '60s to 1982, where we had stubbornly double-digit inflation for a while. I, I think that's one of the reasons why the Fed is potentially going to be pretty uh, vigilant because they don't want to get into that situation again. Okay. And that makes sense. Uh, and so actually, after talking with you today, I feel, you know, it's easy to get wound up about inflation. Um, right. and, and, and really, I think people are getting more wound up because they're looking at their bonds or bond fund values if they price them to the market. Yep. And they're seeing bond funds that normally have been stable um, dropping anywhere from, you know, zero to 15% in the case of the Vanguard total bond index off its all-time highs. And, and so maybe that's maybe that just increasing people's awareness. Right. And also, uh, you have to be pretty old to uh, see a different world. We've had 40 years of uh, either declining inflation or very low inflation. So for 40 years, uh, there hasn't been a big uh, you know sell-off in the bond market because of um, higher interest rates. So people have not got used to that. And in a sense, uh, the Fed in the country had like a 20-year a free lunch where you could do almost anything you wanted to with spending. You didn't have to worry very much about inflation. And some people said, well, that's going to continue forever. And most of us said, no, it's not. It's going to end. But we didn't know when it was going to end. But I guess the answer is it's going to end right about now. So, in other words, for a long time, you could be think about long-term uh, investments or, pro or projects uh, real estate or whatnot, and you probably weren't sitting around 
spending a lot of time talking about, but what if inflation goes up? Suddenly, probably in a lot of these models are saying, hey, we do have to now consider one more random variable to take, you know, which is a number we don't know yet. And that's inflation and and probably a lot more modeling going on saying, well, what if inflation does this or that? I I think that's clearly the case. I think even retirees are are suddenly waking up to that and thinking, wow, you know, in a world of, you know, one, two, three percent inflation, there there wasn't a lot of discussion about, Mm -hmm. well, what if inflation goes up? It was almost in many ways a given that uh, inflation is you know kind of trend line inflation's two three four percent you know it's probably three but with you know plus or minus two over right. giving periods and and, uh, and there's no compensation right now in the uh, uh late 70s early 80s you could go uh, to a bank and get a cd that was more or less at the level of inflation but you can't do that right now even though interest rates are up they're they're still far below as you said the uh, uh actual rate so we have still almost a negative uh, uh, real rate of inflation real rate of interest right even when you were getting 16 percent on your six-month cd you think well that's great but inflation was three 13 percent so in other words you were getting a a, a a real rate of return then and that's something you're not getting now if you're getting a one or a two percent cd right. and cpi is eight percent you know you're losing seven or eight you know six or seven percent and i guess there's also a a bright side for a few people, if, if you bought a home with a really low interest loan, uh, that's money in your pocket now, basically, because of inflation. I have a, a, a more minor kind of situation. I uh, bought a new car a, a year ago or so, and they had zero interest for uh, 60 months or something of that sort. I said, why not? And right. I didn't think it made any difference. But now, basically, it's making my, my car cheaper than I thought it would be. Yeah, and I think people don't. We always think about managing our assets, but we never we don't think of our liabilities in the same way. And likewise, if you have like I have a thirty year mortgage at two point seven five percent, and probably go out and get that same mortgage today, I'm a little confused. I, I look at interest rates, uh, and they seem it depends on where you look. And you know, what, you could read some things and assume that thirty year mortgage rates are six and a half, six point seven five percent, but then. If you do further digging, it looks like they're in the upper fives, and 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 if someone's in that business and town wants to call and say, "Well, you're wrong," it's four point seven five. That'd, that'd be nice to know, but clearly that two point seven five is not available. And if it was even four point seven five or five point seven five, that's that's kind of like owning a bond and interest rates go down, and my bond's more valuable. So it, uh, I think right. that has played quite a bit into why real estate. Uh, you know, Ryan, you're fresh off the <laughs> the real estate windmill when, you know, you bid above the price of a house and there's 10 other offers and you didn't get it, but it just makes you wonder what that house went for. And that's not a unique situation. No, certainly not. We're, he- we're hearing that all the time. And that goes back to, well, even if mortgage rates are four and a half or five, if you're still thinking about it, if you have expectations of long-term inflation, uh, and, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that later in the show about you know the difference between buying a house for three hundred thousand a few years ago that now is four hundred or four twenty five you know it's it's going to eat up if your income has sort of stayed the same on the real terms it's eating up a much larger part of your income yeah. stream and but it yeah. kind of, but then the lack of supply at least for it has been a lack of supply and relatively low interest rates and an inflation that's basically saying you're going to be rewarded for borrowing and buying. Uh, I can see why in some sectors of the real estate market have really appreciated, you know, in, in, in very strong ways. And if you also... Yeah, it's a very complicated uh, situation with inflation. As you said, it has all kinds of, of uh, facets. And one thing, eventually, if interest rates go really high, uh, for mortgage interest, it's going to have an effect on home prices. Back in the uh, 70s and 80s, uh, the high interest rates actually uh, was partially borne by the uh, sellers because they couldn't sell their houses usually because of the necessity of uh, people buying it having a very high mortgage rate of interest. Yeah, I always think of uh, assets like that is, or for many things that cost money, is, look, there's only a certain price the market's willing to pay per month for a particular house. So you you could call it price for the house if you want, but people are only going to spend a certain percentage of their income, and and that's why I could see some of this froth in real estate. Maybe I'll be wrong, and realtors will probably tell me I'm wrong. 
But I, I think some people are making mistakes on the buy side uh, from a pricing standpoint to the extent that, you know, yeah, we're all used to this low inventory, but that's going to work its way out. And there's a, there's a large inventory from what I read uh, of, not com- of non-completed homes. And then at the same time, you get mortgage rates at five or six percent or higher. You, you could, I right. could, I could see a not a crisis in real estate, but certainly uh, maybe some negative returns for the next five years if if you pay too much. And maybe some people right. are paying mm-hmm. know they're paying perhaps uh, an above market. If there is such thing as an above market, a market price is a market price, but maybe more than uh, if they step back, they, that they would rationalize. Uh, but maybe if they're in a strong enough position, it doesn't matter. Right. Uh, Paul, I'm going to have to sign okay. off. So All right, Fred. Well, thanks for checking in, and safe travels, pal. Right. All right. Bye. Bye. All right. Now back to the regular scheduled broadcast, <laughs> Ryan. Um, let's talk about that a little bit, yeah. not about your inability to purchase the home. I, I know that doesn't bother you at all. But, uh, <laughs> Jay, if you can't kid your son-in-law, who can you who can you? you know, kid. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, of course it's my daughter that's going to be really mad at me. Yep. Certainly. It's one thing to lose a home that you kind of were having your eye on. Another thing to have to hear it from your father-in-law for the, you know, every day for the next couple of weeks. A month. Yeah. Probably. It'd probably be a month. But it certainly was an interesting uh, case study. That's for sure. And like kind of what's going on right now. Something maybe a year ago you wouldn't have done. No, certainly uh, not. You wouldn't go in and say it's worth X. I'm going to pay uh 10% more. I don't know what, I don't even know your numbers. I'm right. just saying, but, uh, but it's not unusual uh, for people to pay twenty five, offer twenty five, fifty thousand more than the price of a house, and then not get it. And uh, it's just something a year or two ago, I don't think one would have ever even contemplated doing. No, I feel like it's kind of like that game of like um, you know moving chairs. Like you're all trying to. There's like ten people. Musical chairs. Yeah. Musical chairs, not moving chairs. That you know, there's only so many chairs, and now the chairs seem to get even lesser and lesser. And it's like everybody swarms it as soon as it goes available. And that I think was kind of the case of what we're seeing here. There's just in certain segments of the the housing market, there's only very limited inventory, and people are saying, "Well, I've probably been looking to move already for maybe a year, year plus, two years," and then boom, it's just like a free for all. It's like piranhas attacking prey. It's like out of nowhere, everybody's coming out of the woodwork for this and just driving up the price. And like you said, it's not necessarily like they're paying above market. They're just paying above what maybe someone else will pay because they value it so much more in this limited stock environment that we have right here. It makes you wonder when the price is set on real estate. And if a realtor wants to call in, feel free to educate us. Um, I'm just going to use a bogus number, uh, $500,000 house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... You know, and then, so they list it at five hundred or four hundred or three hundred, and then it sells for ten or twenty percent more or thirty percent more. Well, ten or twenty probably is more realistic. I wonder what wonder why that price wasn't. You know, what what is it about the market today that makes it so difficult to come up with a listing price when it seems historically it tends tends to be with the outlier other than the outliers but on, you know on average it seems that they come pretty close to what the you know the expectation of the seller is pretty close to the expectation of the buyers i want you know yeah. it makes me wonder why that is maybe it, they're gaming it you know i think right now they certainly could be like part of it could be well let's just let's kind of like chum the waters a bit and i going back to some more fishing examples or but. maybe it's uh it's you know what we can be a little uh we don't have to be all that precise on mm-hmm. our asking price because we're going to let the marketplace determine ultimately in this type of environment, you know, what that house is going to sell for. Maybe, maybe it's 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 so volatile that even seasoned realtors are saying, "Look, right now we don't know how to." And, the, and I'm just making this up. Yep. I, I don't know that that's the case, but maybe it's just too difficult to come up with a the. A price of that's within uh, a few percentage points of what it ultimately sells for. Yep, I, I think it's very, very, very possible that's the case, and they're just looking at it and saying, "Wow, almost anything like that we kind of knew as like what's normal rational buying rules are kind of almost kind of thrown to the side for right now, and saying kind of almost anything goes right now. You just don't know where someone's coming from with an offer." Well, it's interesting. Uh, it's, it seems like my house. I looked on Zillow. And, you know, it doesn't mean that's the price. Right. Okay. And it's certainly, it's not the price. It's an indication of, hey, based on all our algorithms, this is sort of what we think your house is worth. Turns out Zillow's algorithms were part of the problem. That's why they got out of the house 
buying business. Um, but I was stunned to see, it seems like the last time I looked, it was about five years ago. And five years ago, it seemed like it was worth about what I paid for it in 2013. And suddenly, it's about 30% higher mm-hmm. uh, than the last time I happened to pay attention to it. And that that just stunned yeah. me a little bit. Yep. Of course, it doesn't know that I put in that expensive kitchen that I'll probably never get my <laughs> yeah, money out of. Exactly. There's there's no there's no understanding, of course, fixes that you've done or declines in the sure. value of the house. Like, you know, I've got a dog and it's destroyed my floors and that's not accounted for in the price. So there's plenty of things it doesn't account well, for. Well, I was looking at an example of someone maybe a couple of years ago bought a $300,000 house and suppose they have an income either single or jointly. The household income, let's just leave it at that, is around 105000 And the reason I picked that number is for a couple of reasons. But one is you can pretty much, at a federal level, make 105000 And after standard deductions, you know, you're still probably in, don't get too far out of the 12% bracket Mm -hmm. if you do at all. Uh, And I don't know. uh, I suppose if someone, if a household had 105000 of income a couple of years ago, Maybe they, maybe I'm underestimating the value of the home they might typically buy. But I use 300 just sort of arbitrarily, and it also, if I look at the payment back then and the taxes based on that value, um, it kind of works out to 20 percent of household income, which is one measure people look at, I think. Mm-hmm. And if I look at that house now that may very well sell for 400 thousand or more, just a couple years later or a year and a half later. And now mortgage rates, instead of being at 3% or 55 let's just use that. Now it's going to eat up closer to 30% of their household budget. And I, I think, obviously, people are measuring that and they're thinking about that when they pay these prices. Yep. Um, but that's, consider- that's a considerable change. Uh, it's in their payments, between payment and taxes, their income, I mean, their costs are going to go up 34% versus just a couple of years ago. Yep. So maybe these people are earning more at the same time, and that very well could be. But, you know, these numbers are they're pr- large differences in a year or two-year time. Certainly, and you can also see how that will squeeze, you know, squeeze buyers too because there's presumably only so much of a fixed income you're earning. You're not going to maybe jump up the 8% per year. In fact, I'm sure most people would laugh at that comment. You know, you only have so many dollars to go around, and if you're, you're – New house payment is now incorporating a seven or eight thousand dollar increase per per year, um, roughly in additional interest that you're having to service on that debt. It's going to potentially severely limit the options you have. So now maybe you're looking at a house that's substantially smaller than you had been looking at in the past, simply because that interest rate's higher, and it's just a function of what you can and cannot buy now because of a higher interest rate. Yeah, so it's interesting. Maybe we live in interesting times, but that's the one area there where you you've seen a real spike in interest rates is at the mortgage level. Um, and it'd be interesting to see how that plays out if, uh, as supply increases at the same time we have high mortgage rates. If Fred's right, and I tend to think he is, and this may be a temporary reaction, maybe overdone reaction mm-hmm. on the mortgage rate side, maybe not. Uh, but and, and, and the more he talked about it, the more it made sense to me that, you know, this 8.5% inflation gets your attention certainly but probably we're going to be seeing print numbers around you know four and a half five five and a half percent which is still stubbornly high and still problematic Mm -hmm. in many areas of life but it's 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 in a different ballpark than uh, when you start seeing eight and a half percent inflation and inflation as high as it was 40 years ago the last time it was outrageous uh high yeah um so what are you talking so when you talk to clients and and for the first time they're seeing their bond portfolios down Three, four, five, six, ten percent, depending on the makeup of their bond portfolio. Mm-hmm. The longer the maturities, um, the more interest rate sensitive they are. And if interest rates go up, bond prices go down. Uh, are you hearing much chatter? Does it seem to you that it's going unnoticed, or clients are just figuring out? You know what? I'm not going to worry about it because that's what I pay those guys to do. What's your sense of it? Uh, my sense of it, just based on the lack of phone calls I've gotten personally, is that most people. Um, that I'm working with in a client basis are saying, hey, this is just this is just the way it is sometimes. And the, the handful of calls that I've gotten were, hey, more or less along the lines of educate me rather than like talk me off the ledge, so to speak. So because most people think bonds are supposed to be safe, 
right? And I think in the in the and I think if you look at the generic way investors view things, they've been told their whole lives that they are, and even though they've declined recently, they would still be deemed safe compared. Mm -hmm. Usually, safety is compared to what. Uh, in most people, it's compared to the stock market. It's a much safer. The fluctuation is, you might see a ten percent decline in bonds, but in any given year in the stock market, you know, you might be up twenty percent or down twenty percent. Bonds fundamentally don't do that. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's kind of the, you know, the initial feedback I gave is, you know, the the handful of calls I got I was like, hey, tell me about this. You know, let's let's get a sense of it. And my whole point of it is, you know, the bonds will do what they're going to do just the same as what the stocks are going to do, what they're going to do. We can't control it. So we focus on what we can control. And we can control the fact that we own bonds for a reason. And the reason is, in our world, is to be a general stabilizer relative to stocks so that when we're in significant stock declines, and I would not call today's environment a significant stock decline, just maybe a regular run-of-the-mill It's a correction, correction at this point, down 10 or 11%. It's hard to even pay any attention to it. But right. it's easy for us to say that. Precisely. Because we talk about percents, but the clients say, hey, I have a $500,000 portfolio in stocks. If it's a client, I mean, or an investor, I should probably say. Mm-hmm. And... They, they'll say, hey, my portfolio is down 50000 Right. I, I don't think of things in terms of percentages. And, or they say my portfolio is down, and that took me an entire year to earn that money, and it's down that, that amount this year. And like, well, that's get, very powerful. That'll get your, your attention when you start thinking about that, now that you mention it. Just think about you've, you've worked a $30,000, dollars $50,000 a year job your whole life. You've been putting money you know, deliberately and consistently in a 401k plan, and and, and now you have a – four hundred one k portfolio in retirement of five or six hundred thousand dollars, and in you know in a few months' time you could see if you're fully invested in stocks, which mm-hmm. most people aren't in retirement. But you don't have to be fully invested to have a ten percent decline in a investment portfolio. A sixty percent stock, forty percent bond portfolio can be down ten percent right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're going to say, "Wow, that's there's fifty thousand in their mind seemingly disappearing." And I used to have to work a whole year to make fifty thousand yeah. dollars and work hard, maybe fifty work hard. plus hours a week for that money. Um, so it is; it's very real, and it's all a matter of how you look at it, of course. And you know, for for people who are still working or maybe just newly minted retirees, that's probably the mindset they're looking at. Is like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Um, but anyway, the the point that I was coming back to here is, you know, the purpose of bonds. The purpose of bonds is is not meant to be this uh, this asset class that doesn't decline. But rather, it's the asset class that allows us to keep invested in, in the stock side of things that gives us the greatest p- growth potential over a long period of time. You know, what I'm looking at is decades of, of, a, of an investment time frame, not years or months, what we're talking about now in the past four months of this year. The way some people put it is I own bonds in my portfolio so I can sleep well and I own the great companies of America and the world. Some people call it stocks. Uh, so that I can eat well in the mm-hmm. future. And, and I think that's a healthy way to think of it, and it kind of puts it in perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Can, you know, there's been a lot of, um, I don't know, you know, as you know, I read probably three hours a day. Yep. Half of the stuff I read is probably not worthy of reading, but it, you don't know until you get through it. And that's not the comics, right? You're reading it's something material? Yeah. I can't afford the comics. Those are too expensive <laughs> with inflation. And... One of the things that seems to pop up, I, I use a lot of uh, article curators, is the 60-40 portfolio is dead. Now, when mm-hmm. I say the 60-40 portfolio, sort of the standard issue allocation, if you kind of look at most investors in retirement or advisors in retirement, it's not unusual to see a balanced portfolio that 60% of it is invested in the great companies of America and the world and 40% in income-producing investments like bonds, et cetera. And so it's there's this kind of this generic thought of the 60-40 portfolio. You see it all the time. And, mm-hmm. and for about the last five years or maybe even 10, we've been reading the 60-40 portfolio, that is 60% stocks, 40% bond portfolio, is dead. Mm-hmm. And then the reason, the rationale being with interest rates virtually at zero, that 40% in bonds is not contributing much to the total return. And so if you're allocated in that manner, you might not earn the returns that are going to provide you the income over a two- or three-decade retirement 
to to keep up with that rising cost of living. I never bought into that for the simple reason is it's the total return of the portfolio. And maybe the fact that interest rates are so low is an indication what that stock prices may compensate for it because a lower interest rate environment is favorable for stocks. So in a in a, in my world, it, it it never really concerned me. But intuitively, it makes sense that if you have forty percent of your portfolio for years paying maybe one or one and a half percent in bonds, two, uh, it doesn't contribute much to the total right. return. Now. Yes, these bond price, the bond prices are down and bond fund prices are down temporarily. But the reason is, is because interest rates are rising. And now as these short-term bonds mature, those fund managers are going to go out and buy newly issued bonds, maybe at 3 or 3.5% today when they were selling bonds that had a yield of only a half percent. Mm-hmm. And so over time, this temporary damage done by higher interest rates tends to work to heal itself. And we get back to the levels we were at from our principal, but now we have a portfolio. Ultimately, if we end up, like Fred says, at a 4 or 5% inflation rate, just that, and we hang in there for a while, it wouldn't be unusual to think you might have 4 or 5 6% bonds and CDs in that world. Mm-hmm. Well, now you actually have a nominal rate of return in your 60-40 portfolio that's contributing fairly handsomely to the total return of that portfolio. Now, once again, maybe the compensation factor will be the stock market return, total return won't be as high. One never knows. There's no facts about the future. But it's certainly, from an income-producing standpoint, it's probably, uh, it's, it's, it, it could be deemed a favorable environment for somebody in an allocation that's roughly 50 or 60% stocks and 50 or 40% bonds. Yep. And I just always have to remind myself if, you know, clients – thinking about, gosh, the bonds are doing so poorly. This is supposed to be the safe stuff, you know, so to speak, the stuff that, you know, allows me to sleep and it's causing me stress now. You know, the alternative is what? Investing solely in, in well, stocks? cash is worse. Cash. Um, right. You know, uh, treasury bills are worse, uh, you know, near cash. Uh, so it's, a, it's the most difficult fixed income environment in my, well, I'm just going to call it almost 40 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I've been through. I'm not particularly concerned about it, but it certainly, you know, it's not something that we're used to. Uh, but this too shall pass, and, and eventually it will self-heal as it does mathematically in the bond market compared to the stock market. The stock market to me is a self-healing process, mm-hmm. but for different reasons than the bond market. But it does present a new risk for retirees, I think, that they really need to contemplate, contemplate seriously. Um, the way I've always seen it, and you've heard me say it uh, probably more times than you care, that to me, a, a retirement period that can last for three decades now for a newly minted retiree is really nothing more than one large if this, then that. Things are going to change throughout those two to three decades in retirement. Things such as, well, what if I have particularly good returns or what if I have particularly bad returns? Um you know, there's consequences to that, and you have to know where to make the adjustments. Uh, what if inflation is above normal compared to a trendline inflation, or what if it's below normal? Again, additional consequences, but inflation is one that investors haven't had to spend too much time mm-hmm. spending a lot of time about how that could cause us problems. I think it completely changes the game for retirees. Because, you know, the, rise, the, the grinding down of purchasing power or the constant rising prices uh, throughout a three-decade retirement, at trendline inflation, it can cause the things to, you want and need to buy to at least double but maybe triple. Now, if we start thinking of above trendline inflation, we have to think seriously about our cost of living throughout a three-decade period, maybe going up by a factor of three or fourfold. That That... Some people need to think through that, and along with that, probably more frequent adjustments are going to be warranted or needed to keep a plan viable. Okay. Um, I think it's also important to to maybe keep in the back of your head, too, that like Dr. Gertz was saying earlier, this 8% inflation is probably not going to be persistent for a long period of time. So although we're, we're being kind of weighed down by this in the media a lot right now, it's not necessarily what we should be considering the new norm for inflation looking out for a period of decades. It, hopefully, it's, yeah. bubble, it's a bubble transitory period. 
Um, but it is. It is a material consideration, something we did talk about inflation maybe a couple years ago post-COVID um, event, but it was short-lived. And it was like it was kind of there in the, in the media blip. and gone. Yeah. Now it seems to be catching and really taking root, I think, in people. And, and, you know, I think it's worthy of discussion. I think it's worthy of consideration as you're planning, um, but maybe not to the full weight but that it's been given at this immediate moment right today. I agree. But as retirees, I ask you to think about this. Say my spend, do everything I want to do is 50000 mm-hmm. And in normal inflation situations, and retirees, as research shows, tend to underspend mm-hmm. by about 1% relative to inflation. And so suppose in a normal year, year after year, inflation's 3%, and I want to increase my spending by 2 because that's what retirees tend to do. Now the next year I have 51000 in order to, is what I need to keep up my standard of living. Well, in the last couple of last year and a half or so, for a lot of people, their cost of living's gone up twenty percent. So now that fifty thousand needs sixty thousand dollars of income, mm-hmm. and so we say, well, okay, well that gets your attention. But now inflation's not going to be, and I'm not suggesting inflation was twenty percent in one year, but I think it's safe to say over the last, uh, uh, you know, five years for you know particularly the last two or so. It's it, you'd probably need twenty percent more today than you did two or three years ago, and maybe inflation now levels off to four percent or five for a while. Maybe mm-hmm. the next three or four years we have four or five percent inflation, but now we have above trend line inflation on a number that jumped quite a bit. Certainly, it still can be a real problem for retirees that they need to think about how they are going to deal with that. They need to talk to their advisor about how are we planning to deal with this. And I would probably also ask your advisor, have they tested their process against periods like the mid-60s to 1982? I think, you know, and, 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 you know, that answer is very important, whether it's yes or no. And, yes, we have tested it. And here's the results, and here's kind of what our takeaway is. I think that's – so I think if retirees have probably gotten away without a lot of advice necessary for some people – I think they're probably staring at a completely different future now. Um, and I think some advice, again, people could, could think, think of this as self-promoting. It doesn't matter if people call me or call us or not, but they should seek counsel from somebody who understands the impact of something that can be as menacing as above trendline inflation in, for a retiree. Yeah, and certainly it happens in, in a faster period now if we're seeing 8% above, you know, we're seeing 8% today. Whereas before, like the inflationary effect was kind of like you see a death by a thousand cuts scenario. Sure. Whereas now it's like it's sped up quite a bit. You're going to see it more uh, realistically and drastically in a shorter period of time. So I think that's why it's gaining more ground than it has in the past. Those adjustments that are coming are going to be critical and they're going to be the difference between coming, making it out alive or not financially, I yep. think. Um, Let's shift. We have another uh, maybe uh, nine minutes or so. Let's talk a little bit about I-bonds and Treasury Inflation Protected Securities because there's more and more articles written about them. They've always been sort of a fantastic thing, but in the case of I-bonds, you're really limited to how much you can buy. You Typically, it's difficult to buy them through your advisor or your broker. Uh, In some cases, it's possible, but it's it's unusual. Um, For people that aren't used to I-bonds, any person can buy $10,000 in any given year. So a couple could buy 20000 So there is a limit for a lot of people. That's a lot. For some people, that just barely touches what they would have to invest in bonds. And basically, um, it's just another member of the U.S. Uh, bond savings bonds family. And it pays interest based on two components, a fixed rate of return plus a semi-annual variable rate that changes with the fluctuations in inflation. So right now, I think the Fixed yield is zero, but then if inflation is 8% over the next period of time, you're going to get that increase in value of 8% of inflation. So at least you're locking, you're not going backwards with mm-hmm. inflation. So if you earn zero and inflation's eight, you're at minus eight. This way, you're still at zero. Okay. It's, it's not that exciting. And you can buy them either, um, I think, at paper. Uh, you, you can buy them in, denominations. I'm going to give them to you. If you buy paper bonds, you can buy them in multiples of $50, $100, $200, 500 or 1000 Electronically through their system can be purchased at any amount down to the penny. Uh, so sometimes you can find financial institutions that have them. 
Uh, but you can certainly search for them online uh, and find them easy enough. I may even have here in my notes uh, where maybe you can look that up. I know on Treasury Direct, yeah, Treasury yep. Direct, same thing. So go to Treasury Direct and on the internet and you'll find them. Make sure you're at the right <laughs> financial site. Uh, there's some trips or traps on the taxation, <coughs> how it works. You want to educate yourself. Um, but when you redeem the bond, and there's some stipulations, um, but they are the only bond in the world uh, that the U.S. government guarantees in this fashion from an inflation standpoint. They're not intended to be traded. You can't cash them in uh, for at least 12 months after buying the bonds. And if you redeem them before a five-year anniversary, your penalty is the last three months of interest. So they're really something you should plan on holding for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on, you know, you know, there's some little tax trips not big enough to worry about but educate yourself so you don't get surprised we don't have time to go through all those uh then there's the inflation uh treasury inflation protected securities which you can basically buy any amount you want they act differently you're locking in basically a fixed forever because that fixed rate in an i-bond changes every six months Mm -hmm. when you buy a treasury inflation protected security today you're locking in a, a a a real yield for a long period of time, but what changes with inflation is the price of the bond. So when the price of the bond goes up with inflation, you get the same interest rate, but you get it on a larger balance, so you're getting compensated for inflation. Uh, Both of them uh, are very effective inflation hedges in the case of I-bonds. You know, depending on the size of your portfolio, it would take a long time to right. have a measurable period. Treasury inflation protected securities are fine, but they're not perfect either. There's no free lunches. If real interest rates go up, which they probably will sharply, mm-hmm. you're locked in for a long period of time. It, like today, if you go out and buy one, you're going to earn maybe a minus half percent to minus one percent return for the next, say, you buy 10 years for 10 year period of time. So in other words, you're saying I am it's okay with losing one percent in real value over per year for the next ten years because I don't want to lose more than that if inflation's a problem. So I've seen Treasury inflation protected securities with a real yield of four percent locked in for thirty years. In other words, you could have received a four percent return inflation adjusted for thirty year periods. If you can even imagine, and now they're at minus. Wow. So right now we have negative uh, real rates. If you look at a treasury inflation protected security of maybe around minus one, uh, we could have positive real rates of two, three, four percent. That's the downside to me of overdoing treasury inflation protected securities at a negative real return. It's not me saying you shouldn't buy them. It's just a consideration for buying them. Um, the other side of that right now is nominal bonds, short-term high quality that are going to mature rapidly and increase their interest rate at the new nominal interest rate. And so both are effective hedges. Uh, everybody's situation is different. Some people may prefer the I-bonds and the Treasury inflation-protected securities. People can educate themselves quite easily. Uh, Advisorpedia is a good place, or Investopedia is a good place to learn about them if you want to learn the basics. It's not it's a little bit of a tangled web I'm told from clients and people that buy I bonds to go through their electronic system. You just have to be persistent. I think the to buy the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities is pretty easy. In fact, you could buy Vanguard's Treasury Inflation Protected Security mutual fund and make it real easy, very low expense ratio. I'm not promoting that fund. I'm not suggesting people buy it. I'm just saying here's an example of a fund, instead of going out and buying individual bonds yourself, you could go buy the Vanguard Treasury Inflation Protected Security yeah. Portfolio. And ultimately, they're just tools in your tool belt. And one tool may be a little bit more appropriate for your risk appetite. Right. Someone who's just really interested in just saying, I'm really trying to protect that downside risk, might be really interested in the tips the, the tips option, just because I'll lock in a negative 1% rate if it means I'm saving myself from a negative 10% rate. Someone might say that is so valuable to me that that's okay. They'll take the loss of a, a 1% per year. And that, you know, it just comes down to appetite and, and, and behaviorals. You know. So you, what it is is you can have cert- more certainty with the Treasury Inflation Protected Security, but you're certain you're going to lose 1% a year in real, in real value terms. Yeah. Uh, over a 10-year period. And, I'm, and I, when I say that, I don't mean to make that 
you know, sound like a negative. It's just, it is what it is type of thing. Just in case people want to know, they can be purchased tips, that is, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities purchased directly from the government through the Treasury Direct System. $100 increments with a minimum investment of $100, and they're available in 5, 10, and 30-year maturities. Uh, you know, I couldn't get excited about buying a 10 or a 30-year Treasury Inflation Protected Security. It may be around a minus one yield, or maybe it's minus half right now. It has backed up a little bit. Uh, but a five-year is certainly something to consider. I just personally wouldn't be in the – well, I don't buy 10-year bonds anyway. So, right. you know, rather they're Treasury Inflation Protected Security. So that might be a really good option for people to think about. Uh, don't call us about buying I-bonds or Treasury Inflation Protected Security because <laughs> I've talked about them before and then people call and they want to buy them because they can't buy them through their person. And I say, well, for the same reason you can't buy them through me. It's just not something we do or that we can do. Right. Uh, so – I can save that phone call for people, but you might talk to your bank. Sometimes, you know, through a bank you can do it. But, again, sometimes for Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, the easiest way would be something like to take a look at the Vanguard Treasury Inflation Protected uh, Securities Bond Fund. Yeah, and, and presumably most any, you know, mutual fund company is going to offer their equivalent of a TIPS fund, a Treasury Inflation Protected Securities For sure. Fund. So it's not Vanguard unique. It's just – Fidelity's has one. I mean, yeah, Schwab has one. Uh, you know, we use dimensional funds. They have one. But I will say, with the caveat of all of this, is the greatest inflation hedge created by humankind, by the hands of humankind, I still say are the great companies of America and the world. The problem is, in the near term, you know, when sudden inflation helps up, sometimes it actually hurts stock prices. But given enough time, uh, you know, they've certainly proven themselves to be the greatest, in my opinion, the greatest inflation head crafted by the hands of humankind. So part of your portfolio for most people is going to want to be in the great companies of America and the world. Yep. And certainly when you own a stock or, or a fractional share of one and the prices are going up, you're owning a greater fractional share of the earnings of those companies. So exactly. that helps offset. All right. Well, thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. May 10th is our next show. We'll be back with more information. If you have any questions, call us 356-1400 if you have suggestions for the show topics. I hope everybody's doing well. Talk to you on May 10th. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on DWS, paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. You can join Paul on the second and fourth Tuesdays of each month here on News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM. The views expressed in this program were those of the host and the guests and not necessarily those of the station. You're listening to News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM WDWS Champaign-Urbana, a Champaign multimedia group station.